we utilize embryo transfer and we utilize in vitro fertilization, those technologies are improving all the time and they may have a bigger role in the future rather than just simply utilizing synchronization for AI. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Show podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and our guest today is Dr. Cliff Lamb. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Lamb. Uh, he is professor at uh, Texas A&M AgriLife, uh, or excuse me, Texas A&M University, and his current position is the director of Texas A&M AgriLife Research, and that's a relatively new position for him. So we look forward to hearing a little bit more about that. Dr. Lamb has had a wide range of experience. He was the um, head at Texas A&M University. And then in his uh, kind of research life before that, he was at the University of Florida as the UF Research Foundation professor and then uh, came up through the ranks there at the University of Florida. He did his graduate work at Kansas State University and his training is in reproductive physiology, which is really going to shape our conversation today. So Dr. Lamb has received a wide range of honors and accolades over his career. I'm not going to read them all, but some of the really um, kind of intriguing ones to me are outstanding graduate student mentor from the Department of Animal Science there at Texas A&M that he just received in 22. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Some alumni awards from Kansas State and then various breed association and other USDA NEFA awards. So Dr. Lamb, it is our pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. It's great to be a part of the show and look forward to the discussion. Yeah. So we always want to start by letting our guests have the opportunity to tell us a little bit about your journey. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about how you ended up where you are today? Sure. Owen, I, the path of getting to where I am, um, I, I, can, I can tell you right off the bat that as a kid or growing up, you never really envision becoming a university administrator, right? But um uh, for me and many of you will recognize that I do speak with a little bit of an accent. I actually grew up in uh, Zimbabwe, Africa, on a beef and dairy cattle operation, and we grew tobacco and corn. And from a very early age, um, at about 12, I learned to artificially inseminate cows on, on the operation, and I became very passionate about reproduction. And I'm, you know, I, uh, being in education of students, I realized that I was quite unique in the fact that from the age of around 12 or 13, I knew what I wanted to do. And many students that we actually educate now still don't really know until sometime into their undergraduate or graduate programs. And so um, I made a commitment very early on through high school that I was going to come to the U.S. and study, uh, work in reproduction. And so right at, uh, shortly after high school, I came over and I uh, actually went to Middle Tennessee State University where I got my ba bachelor's degree. Um, I was committed still to reproduction. I went to Kansas State uh, where I got my master's and PhD. And around that period of time, I was still very keen on going back to Africa. We, uh, we had a decent-sized operation, around 1,500 uh, beef cattle, and milked about 600 dairy cows. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to 
get into reproductive technologies, sort of the emerging technologies to improve our uh, beef cattle operations and our dairy, but also get to get into wildlife preservation. And so obviously Africa has a lot of wildlife and so endangered species and things like that, that, that really excited me. But, you know, a lot of things happen politically. Um, many of the ranches in Zimbabwe were nationalized in the late 90s. So I really didn't have an opportunity to go back to our ranch. And I, that's when I chose to stay in academ academia in the U.S. and sort of continue to pursue my passion here. And so that led me to the University of Minnesota, um, where I started out as an assistant professor and very fortunate at that period of time to be working on developing fixed-timed AI systems for beef cattle. We, we sort of were at the forefront of that and sort of getting the uh, products like the Cedar approved uh, through FDA. We were involved in that. And all of those types of processes, um, it was sort of the heyday of synchronization research. And so I was very lucky to, to be a part of that and then uh, continue my career in uh, developing new ways to increase efficiency of beef cattle productions through uh, through uh, reproductive processes, whether that's management, nutrition, or uh, applied reproductive technologies. And so that's where I ended up today. At no point did I ever anticipate that I would have spent my whole life in the U.S., uh, but or even become a, a university administrator, but here I am. Yeah, I always uh, admire you guys who decided to go down to the administrative pathway, mostly so that I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important that the policy influences the the communication of people hire, to hire in the university about how important animal science, you know, having multiple farms with multiple species, the breadth and depth of those things that are so important for student research experiences and student teaching experiences. But man, it's a, I'm glad that you do it and I don't have to. Yes, sometimes I wish you were doing it and not me. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, firmly on the record. Every time somebody comes to me and they're like, we've been thinking maybe you should be groomed for a chair, thinking about Dean someday. And I was like, that will never, ever happen. I really <laughs> like my job. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I, I was laughing when you were talking about um, Zimbabwe, and that's such a cool kind of origin story. But if you're watching us on YouTube, you can see I have some pictures over my shoulder here. So this is actually some rhinos and then a picture of a lion up there and then I have a, uh, a cheetah on the other wall there. But that was some uh, pictures that I took in South Africa and um, Namibia. So I've been lucky to travel there a couple of times. And gosh, what a what a gorgeous continent. Yeah, it is. And and it's, to, um, you know, even though I live here, going home, to, you know, going back to Africa is always home. And uh, I mean, because of the things that you've just talked about, right? And just uh, the climate is very different and uh, the wildlife is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were talking about, you know, kind of flirting with the idea of doing kind of reproductive assisted stuff with wildlife, you know, saving endangered species and stuff. I instantly could picture that, right? Because we got to meet some folks that are doing those sorts of things. So that's, that's you know, such a, a, a neat thing about anatomy and physiology, right? Especially like our students who come through the undergraduate animal science programs, realizing that once you have the basics of anatomy and physiology, like you can apply that across so many species, um, and, you know, for repro, like a uterus is a uterus for the most part, right? Like there are some differences between species for sure, but what a cool foundational knowledge for those students to have moving forward. Absolutely. 
Yeah, that, that's right. And, and you know, um, when it comes to the, those species, I've been very, very lucky to to actually probably had a greater opportunity to to work in many of those wildlife species by staying over here, right, rather than going back where, at least in the U.S., we have the resources that we can actually do the to do the fundamental research uh, on the comparative differences between the different species in terms of reproductive biology. So I think I'm going to start out with what might be the hardest question of of the whole podcast, because I loved when you were talking about being involved in getting the CEDAR approved. Um, so uh, controlled intrauterine releasing device. Correct. Uh, yes. Okay. Yep. Um, and, you know, so when we use uh, time synchronization protocols in particular, you know, we'll insert a cedar and it's slowly releasing progesterone and then we pull that out and we might hit them with a prostaglandin or something, depending what our protocols are. Um, so my question is this, the cedar and the time synchronization protocols was such a leap forward in our ability to get more cows bred, to control the calving interval and, and shrink that down. What do you think's the next big thing for applied reproduction? Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's the sort of the um, the opportunity that that we're continuing to face in terms of reproduction research. Right, um, I, I'll take a step back and let you know that you know in two thousand and three we developed the CoSync Placida protocol, which is used by about sixty five percent of all the uh, cattle that are AI'd in the U.S. right now, and it's used internationally. Uh, but so that system was developed in 2003, and from 2003 to now 2023, 20 years, we have not found a silver bullet that has significantly increased pregnancy rates um, to uh, to to surpass what we can do with a seven-day cosync placida protocol. Now, there are some protocols that have been developed that add an extra handling here, but they're so much less convenient. And so people may use them for a couple of years and they just don't adopt them for a long period of time. So there are there are other methods of synchronization that could probably increase pregnancy rates marginally. And like I said, by pre-synchronization, running cattle through the chute an extra time and so on. But it's probably the hassle factors of synchronization that prevent people from adopting the technology or using it. And so that's that's why that protocol has sort of remained the most common protocol. And so from my standpoint who actually does research, I still do research and I have five grad students that work in sort of the space right now. And... Um, and we've continued to do work in this space, but I don't think that um, we're really going to see a significant jump in pregnancy rates because I think the pregnancy rates we get in cattle, especially in lactating cows, I think we're as close to the best we're going to get with some marginal increases with, with changes. Uh, but we can probably make those make those differences up in terms of the way we manage cattle, and the and making sure that the uh, that from a herd health standpoint or a nutritional standpoint, we're managing those cattle. Um, they probably have a bigger impact on the outcome of your synchronization system now than some new silver bullet that you decide to use because your neighbor uses it or 
um, or some scientist comes out with a new synchronization protocol, those are going to be marginal increases, but the management of the herd is probably going to have a bigger influence on the outcome. Yeah, our listeners can't see, but my head is like a bobblehead here. I'm just like nodding along with everything Dr. Lamb is saying because I feel like this applies to most aspects of animal production now, right? We probably don't have, you know, there's not a silver bullet that's going to come along and give us a 20% improvement in average daily gain in the feedlot on top of what we already have, right? And that may not be something we want because of meat quality concerns anyway. Um but yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you that, and and everybody has that mindset, right? Where it's like, well, you know, I I want fifty percent, or I have fifty percent preg rate, or you know, conception rates, but I'd really like seventy, and so it's like that's a big difference. Like, how are you going to make that incremental improvement? Absolutely. Uh, so I, I mean, my my personal opinion is it's going to be a different technology beyond fixed timed AI that'll probably have a bigger impact in the long term. Maybe synchronization and um, synchronization will be involved in terms of estrus cycle or ovulation control, but there may be something else that's going to be utilized in the future. And, you know, we utilize embryo transfer and we utilize in vitro fertilization. Those technologies are improving all the time and they may have a bigger role in the future rather than just simply utilizing synchronization for AI. Okay, so let's let's come back to in vitro fertilization in a second because um, while we're kind of thinking about, okay, we've, we've used timed AI or something, we've AI'd the cow, and you know the big push for AI originally was improve your genetics faster than buying a bull from your neighbor or buying even a great seed stock bull, right? Like I'm in Iowa, it's a big seed stock producing state. We have a lot of great bulls, but I can still use a $500,000 bulls, 25 straw, you know, dollars straw semen, right? To to make that genetic improvement in my cows, which is pretty attractive. So tell us a little bit about the concept of, um, you know, so when I, when I breed my cows, am I really only getting 50 or 60% of them to even conceive when I'm using that, that semen on her at breeding? Yeah. You know, I, that's a really good uh, question and a, and a great point. And I think that every beef producer, if they could think about pregnancy uh, uh, differently than what we do right now, I think it would help understand what actually happens. But if you have a cow in heat and you artificially inseminate her or you mate her with a bull, about 90 to 95% of the time you stick semen into that cow, you actually end up with a fertilized embryo. So... Almost every time we inseminate a cow or a bull mates a cow that was in heat, uh, the, the chances are that cow is pregnant most of the time. And so what ends up happening is we'll come back at 30 to 90 days after AI or after the end of the breeding season and preg check, and we end up saying, oh, yeah, well, we got 55% of our cattle pregnant to our AI protocol. It's not really you got 55% pregnant, it means you have 55% pregnant at that point, the pregnancy rate, uh, you actually probably had over 90% pregnant, but you saved 55% of your pregnancies um, during that uh, during that period of time from when you AI'd them until when you preg-checked them. And so the challenge that we work on in, in science is how do we save pregnancies rather than how do we increase pregnancy rate? Because it's our ability to save the pregnancies that increases the percentage of cows that become pregnant, not our ability to get the cows pregnant. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. So actually, when I did some of my master's work with Jerry Spears, we were one of the first groups in a long time to look at how manganese affects reproduction in beef heifers, right? And you know, we had pretty small numbers, so definitely underpowered in terms of being able to look at big reproductive responses where you need hundreds of cows. Um, but we were interested because manganese affects cholesterol, and that could affect the sex hormone progesterone. We were interested if maybe there were some things in the literature that maybe said manganese deficiency could cause early embryonic losses. So we tried to do some ultrasound and things like that, and we never saw anything. It doesn't seem like it seemed like the heifers were pretty immune to the low manganese during breeding. We saw effects during calving and stuff. So like we had some gestational deficiencies that occurred. But I'm curious, so that's an example of a nutritional deficiency. What do you think are some of the top candidates for research that might be causes of early embryonic losses? Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good question. So if you take embryonic loss and you sort of categorize it to different stages, um, so if we start out with 95% of the ca- uh, cows are pregnant uh, on the day that, or the day after you AI them, within the first seven or eight days, um, we'll lose about 20% of those pregnancies. And um, most of those pregnancies are going to be lost because of genetic incompatibility. So with the fusing of the, the sperm and the egg at that point those, those embryos are just not compatible, and so they, they end up dying. Um, at that stage, too, there might be some um, transport or environment in the oviduct uh, or the uterus that just uh, makes, makes something toxic enough so that those embryos cannot survive. So, so that's in the first week, and that's where you get quite a lot of embryonic loss. And then at around day eight of the embryo's life, the embryo hatches, it, uh, out of its little egg, it's called a zona pellucida, and it becomes a little bit more sensitive to environmental stress, right? But the embryo at that point really has to grow quickly because it has to tell the cow that she's pregnant by the time by about day sixteen to eighteen, right? Otherwise, the cow's going to come back into heat, and so. At that stage, what causes um, a- embryonic loss, which happens in about five to ten percent of the, uh, of um, from ninety five, now we're down to seventy five, right? About five to ten percent of the next set of losses is going to come from the embryo just not developing fast enough to tell the cow she's pregnant, because it's uh, the embryo secretes a it's called a maternal recognition factor, interferon tau. Interferon tau. And it's, yeah, it basically tells the cow, hey, don't don't come back into heat. I'm here. Please don't, don't eject me. And if that doesn't occur, um, then you'll have some losses at that point. And um, uh, th- there are some nutritional factors that have an impact on interferon tau because um, the, the growth of the embryo in the uterus at that period of time um, is very dependent on nutrient metabolites or things that are associated with nutrition. So like insulin-like growth factor and those types of um, uh, metabolites or, or hormones, they allow the embryo to grow a little bit quicker and a little longer, so it allows it, them to secrete more interferon tail. So nutrition and, the, the, and the, how those animals are from a nutritional standpoint may have an impact on the ability to of the embryo to tell the cow she's pregnant. All that to say, those losses at that period of time, before, say, day 18 or 20, 
you know, they can be significant, but they're not as costly as losses that occur after that. And the reason for that is that those cows in, in that space, space of time, they'll generally come back into heat in 21 days or uh, on schedule, and they have another chance to become pregnant. And most of them will become pregnant, and that, that pregnancy will survive. Um, but where we run into economic problems with a beef producer is those, we call them sort of uh, mid to late embryo losses. And these are the ones that occur shortly after uh, the cow should have come back into heat. So that 21 to 40 days of pregnancy, those losses often occur in such a way that uh, those cows don't have enough time to recover and cycle again before the end of the breeding season. And those are the cows that end up being open at the end of the breeding season. And so... Um, lots of losses there occur. Um, nutrition plays a role, S- somewhat genetics. We're, we're learning right now that um, some of these mid to late embryos are lost because of the genetics from the male, not just the female. And so um, some of the work that's going on right now in terms of the ability of the genetics from the male is responsible for the placenta, placenta to develop, Right. And so if, uh, whereas the genetics from the female uh, genome actually is responsible for the embryo development. And so we're finding some sire uh, issues with mid to late term losses. So there's some genetic factors there. And then the other big one um, is stress. So figuring out how to limit stress and then obviously um, herd health is extremely important too. So so those are all things that might affect embryo loss later. Yeah. And from a producer standpoint, there's only a few of those that are really within our control, right? The nutrition of the cow, the nutrition of the bull maybe, and then um, the herd health, as you mentioned, and then the ability to mitigate stressors at the wrong time. Um, okay. I have like five follow-up questions. So my first one was, I thought it was really fascinating. I did not realize that it was about how fast the embryo could grow to send the signal that of interferon tau that he was there. Um, so you mentioned uh, insulin-like growth factor one, so IGF-1. Um, is that being produced by the embryo or is that something that's coming from the maternal side? It's coming from the maternal side. It's in the blood system. And so, yes, it is coming from the maternal side. So can I help the cow make more, get more IGF-1? Like what if at the same time of breeding, we also gave like something that stimulated IGF-1 or something? I was like thinking about hormone. research ideas. <laughs> yeah, like growth hormone. Yes. <laughs> um, we, so we've done, we've done the research, right? Uh, you know, for the most part, uh, where, where, the, where that becomes a bit of an issue is on thin cows. So, um, so uh, and uh, cows that are decreasing in condition approaching the breeding season. So from a management standpoint, what you want to do is you want your cows to be in at least a decent body condition score or, or an increasing body condition score approaching the breeding season. And this is one very important reason why is because um, as cattle are increasing in body condition scores, increasing the secretion of IGF-1 from the the liver, right? And so uh, so the increased concentrations and then can get to the uterus and, and help the embryo grow. 
where we run into problems is uh, cows that so I'll say less than a body condition score four on a nine uh, on a one to nine scale, or are on a decreasing plane of nutrition. Um, there's uh, there is a decrease in IGF one concentrations, and that might have a negative impact on uh, the embryo and the embryo's ability to ultimately secrete interferon tail. Okay, so the next one, I, I totally agree with your comment about it's the one that loses them later, right? It's that annoying one that loses it at 42 days or something like that. But we could still recapture pregnancy opportunity with those cows if we could find out that they were open faster. So what are your thoughts on any of the latest and greatest or maybe where the industry needs to go in terms of discovery about detection of some of those losses and seeing when, you know, um, when cows are coming in heat? Because if we could just, you know, if it was like, oh, we just need to bring her in and resync her, that'd be, you know, uh, she may be, be late, but she's not going to be open. Uh-huh. That's a great question. And I think there's an opportunity to utilize uh, various pregnancy detection devices, right? Um you know, probably one of the old tried and true methods is through rectal palpation. The problem with rectal palpation is that you have to wait until uh, the uh, more experienced people can probably do it in the early 30-day range, but most of them are a little more comfortable between 35 and 45 days, somewhere around there. By then, you've lost several days, right? And so that makes things very difficult. Ultrasound, traditional transrectal ultrasound, um, in cows, probably the earliest you want to use um, pregnancy detection is somewhere around 28, 29 days. In heifers, maybe 27, 28 days. Um, again, the drawback is that those cows or heifers, if they hadn't come back into heat or or, or if they had come back into heat and you didn't notice them, you're still giving up um, that seven or eight day window plus the resynchronization time, right? So you're giving up about 10 days, uh, sorry, 14 days. And 14 days means a lot in a beef cattle operation. And so um, there is opportunities now with the blood-based pregnancy detection systems, and there's three or four on the market that all, all work very well, and that gives you an opportunity to do it even earlier most of them are going to say around 24, uh, 20, yeah, 24 to 26 days would be somewhere in the range in which they, they have a high accuracy of detection of whether a female is not pregnant. Um, and so so that that's sort of the best method right now, tried and true. I will tell you that we are busy working right now on the use of Doppler ultrasound. And so... Doppler allows us to utilize blood flow in the corpus luteum. And so um, we can go in at, say, uh, day 20 or 21, around the time that the cow is coming into heat. And with a high degree of accuracy, we can detect, uh, it's over 98% accurate right now, but we can detect a cow that either has no CL, which means she's not going to be pregnant, and so you know she's going to be in heat any day, um, or a cow with a CL that the CL is not very active, we can detect that that cow is either going to lose the pregnancy or is not going to be pregnant within the next week or so. And so by doing that, we can synchronize, resynchronize those cows right away and lose very little time. And so 
So there, there is some new technology coming out right now um, that can be used on beef cattle operations. So, um, okay, so if our listeners don't know, so the, the CL or the corpus luteum would be kind of that scar left after ovulation. And then um, this is when you're palpating and you can feel that on there. Um, and then that is actually going to be responsible for producing the progesterone that helps to uh, maintain the pregnancy. Um, whew, that looks like a throwback to my uh, yeah. master's repro days. <laughs> um, so my question is, like, how early could you use the Doppler ultrasound technique? Yeah, so right now the studies that we've been doing have been on day 18, 20, and 22, so somewhere in that space. Um, what we can, what we have figured out is the accuracy of detecting, so it, there's going to be two, two sort of categories here, um, so it's specificity and uh, sensitivity, right? What we want to do is we want to detect the cows that are open. So, and we don't want to make a mistake to potentially cause a pregnant cow to lose a pregnancy. So that is fairly accurate. Over 98% of the time at day 18, 20, or 22, we can, with a high degree of accuracy, detect which ones are not going to be pregnant. When we start going as low as day 18 of pregnancy, we start losing a little bit of the um, false negative, uh, the false positives, right? Uh, these are cows that we, uh, we call pregnant but later become open. And so we're not, being, we're not as accurate at that point. So we're not going to get rid of pregnant cows, but we're also going to have some cows that are going to come up open a little bit later. And so right now, that sweet spot for Doppler ultrasound seems to be around day 20 to 22. Oh, but even that, like you said, that's five to 10 days earlier than even some of the blood detection ones are going to be. And, you know, we're not going to have the vet come out and palpate when we think everybody's at day 28 because, you know, we may or may not have everybody around there. And <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have to ask this question. Have you ever heard of zinc sparks? No, tell me a little bit about zinc sparks. Okay, you need to Google zinc sparks after we get done here. Um, so obviously, I'm a mineral nerd, right? Uh, but uh, Northwestern University has studied this, and others have studied this now too. Um, essentially, they use a fluorescent probe that me that turns green when it's exposed to free zinc. And basically, what they find is that oocytes are loaded to the point where they would be one of the highest concentrations of zinc in the whole female's body right before fertilization and they think it is so then when the sperm comes and it has um comes in and starts fertilization there's this wave of green that comes out of those oocytes so it's this free zinc being released and it we know that there's calcium waves that come from those oocytes and so the zinc may be kind of following along those lines but the thought is that it's involved in the formation of the zona, zona pellucida so, so so to prevent polyspermy um, but they um, developed these zinc spark assay because they work in a cancer lab and they do, um, you know, egg collection from females before they go through chemo that might damage that kind of thing. Right. And so then they are trying to figure out what are the best potential. They're looking for ways to find the best embryo that is most likely to be successful for pregnancy. And these zinc spark profiles highly correlate to whether or not it would be a successful pregnancy. And of course, the bovine reproductive tract works very well as a model for humans. And so they actually just, you know, get 
tracks and stuff like that from the slaughterhouse and everything to be able to do all these initial kind of of lab things and stuff. And it's just so fascinating because like in cows, we know zinc nutrition is important in reproduction, but we really couldn't put our fingers on exactly why zinc might be important, right? So I thought you might like that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, I, I often tell our students, uh, we can learn so much from what they're doing in human fertility because there is so much, so many resources, right? Um, because because of the importance of uh, humans, uh, of fertility to humans, um, if we spent a little bit of time understanding the human um, research, we could really figure it out. And, and this, this is just another one, right? Another great opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I always joke, whatever the human people are doing, we should probably check that out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I'm guessing like IVF would be one that we in the bovine industry have probably learned a little bit from the human people. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, the, the one comment I do want to make is, you know, the, the funny thing is that I tell people all the time, um, the reason that uh, we spend so much money uh, in human fertility clinics, you know, human fertility research is that humans are the most infertile species that we have because we allow everybody to try to become pregnant that wants to become pregnant, right? In in livestock, uh, food animal, and, and in wildlife too, um, the animals that don't become pregnant don't reproduce, right? So, you know, um, so if you think that somewhere between 55 and 65% of our cattle will carry a pregnancy to term in humans it's around 30 percent it's uh more than half less fertile so we lose humans lose so many more pregnancies than than livestock do so to me it's just amazing that we can get that many cattle pregnant when it's such a complicated system but so so to your question on on embryo transfer and ivf um of the applied reproductive technologies right now, probably the most research and the biggest growth in in terms of increase in percentage of use is in terms of uh, the amount of embryos that are transferred through IVF. Um, and a lot of that is happening in the US right now. Um, if, you, if you'd look back 10 years ago, you'd say 80% of all of the IVF calves were being produced in South America. Uh, now we're seeing a massive influx of that technology in the U.S. And so there are multiple companies, and, and that competition has sparked a, a significant increase in the science and uh, the reliability of the procedures. And so um, the, the great advantage of in vitro fertilization is that the donor doesn't have to go out of production to be able to produce oocytes. So... Under normal embryo transfer, your donor cow, you have to set her up, you flush the embryos out, and you transfer those embryos into a recipient. Uh, with IVF, a donor cow can become pregnant. You can still extract the embryos through transvaginal aspiration. Or you can extract the oocytes, uh, fertilize them in an incubator, and then transfer them seven or eight days later. And so... Um, so it's it's highly attractive. The drawback with IVF is that freezing IVF embryos still is not as successful as freezing regular embryos, and there is more variability in the results, and so you have to weigh those potential negatives. But 
but the but it's amazing the technology has improved so much in the last three to five years. I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of the dairy beef influx that we're having, right? Because I feel like, you know, right now it's using beef semen in dairy cows as we're recording this in January of 23. But how long is it going to be before it's just beef embryos being incubated in dairy cows who still are little pro-inflammatory machines, right? And there's probably all kinds of things we don't completely understand about that. So curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, um, there's, there's no question that um yeah i i don't know what the numbers are but i would suspect somewhere clo- between 30 and 40% of all the calves being born right now on dairies are actually sired by beef beef semen um and i might might be off on those numbers a little bit but just thinking on how they're being utilized in dairies uh but this is all spur this probably would not have happened had it not been for the development and the application of sex semen because sex semen allowed dairymen to just uh, use sex semen on their um, high-producing cows or their high-merit cattle. And then it created this population of dairy cows that needed to become pregnant and that you didn't really care what the sex was. Uh, And then dairymen started realizing that there's an added value to these animals that are actually bred to beef rather than having to discard male calves, right? And so so if it wasn't for sex semen, we probably wouldn't be seeing this phenomenon. Um, and so it, it certainly changed the dairy world. And it's, and it's changing uh, the beef world too. Uh, when you think of uh, this influx of uh, beef on dairy cattle that are going into the feedlots and so on and, and the science associated with that because they're not the same as beef cattle. So... Anyway, that's a side. Yeah. So thinking about sex semen, um, tell us what would be some of your recommendations if producers were thinking about using sex semen because you you do things a little differently in terms of timing, right, than with conventional semen. Yeah, I I would say the last uh, three to five years we've spent quite a lot of time trying to develop fixed timed AI systems for sex semen. Not uh, we're not as concerned about the uh, conventional semen. Not not that we're not trying to work in that space, but for sex semen to really have broad application in beef cattle operations, they're going to have to have acceptable pregnancy rates to fix timed AI. It's not like a dairy where you're handling the animals or almost every day, right? You you've got a finite period of time to get those cattle pregnant. Um, with a minimal amount of handling. And so so we have spent some time um, developing protocols for sex semen. And in actual fact, if you go into the back of any um, SARA directory, you'll see a specific set of protocols for sex semen. In, uh, and these, these are many of these protocols we've worked on. Um, one of uh, several things... Um, in general, sex semen uh, from any of the semen companies, um, uh, you're going to see a decrease in pregnancy rates. Uh, and that number is going to be somewhere between 5 and 10%. Um, but you do have a greater chance of getting better pregnancy rates if the animal has expressed heat. And so what we recommend is using a sex semen protocol is around the time you pull a cedar 
is to put an asterisk detection patch on. And then you AI all of your heifers on the same day. And, and the most popular protocol uh, we recommend um, uh, calls for all the heifers to be AI'd three days later or 72 hours later. And we recommend that you just insert sex semen into those animals with an activated patch. And then anything without an activated patch, you inseminate them with conventional semen. Um, and that'll increase your opportunities to get uh, females pregnant uh, to sex semen. And uh, because there's a, there's you've, you've got a lot less uh, degree of error uh, that, that um, really what we want to do is we want to time the sex semen as close to ovulation as possible. Whereas with conventional semen, it's a lot less heterogeneic sperm. If you think of a a, a dose of sperm of sex semen, um, when it goes through the sexing process, all of the sperm is sorted. And so it's a very, very homogenous sort of uh, amount of sperm. Whereas a conventional sperm, we don't test it at all, right? And so you'll have some sperm that die early and some sperm that will last l longer. Whereas sex semen, it's it's got a finite lifespan. Yeah. So, you know, I've thought about using sex semen, like in my operation, I don't have a lot of cows, but I would prefer, I really like developing heifers. That's always a fun nutritional challenge. So I would rather have heifers than, than bull calves that I have to sell as 4-H calves or whatever. But because I'm small, I don't want to screw around with a lot, of, you know, don't re repeat the process of doing time to AI and stuff. So it was always my understanding, right, that like with conventional semen, like whether you use a sync protocol or not, that, you know, cow comes in at 7, or you see her in standing heat at 7 a.m., you're going to breed her at 7 p.m. Is that look different then? Because I think sex semen maybe doesn't last quite as long in the um, in the track. Is that true? Yeah, th th there's definitely, um, there's definitely uh, the the lifespan of the semen and the viability of the semen is, is there's no question it's, it's going to be a little bit shorter. Um the dogma, I, I'll, I'll call it dogma, because there has never really been any science. There's, there was one paper that published that's uh, postulated that waiting later with sex semen, you'll get better pregnancy rates. But when we've tried to test that in our sex semen protocols, we don't seem to find, we, we can't repeat that. Um, what we, so... What we've discovered is just trying to figure out when ovulation is um, and AIing around six to 10 hours before ovulation with sex semen is the best thing to do. So it's very hard for me to recommend somebody to go beyond the AMPM rule like we will con with conventional. I would tell people to continue to do that if they're going to use heat as a sign of when to AI because... Um, you know, if the if the heifer or the uh, cow decided, I mean, if she actually ovulates uh, when, um, earlier than the time in which you AI'd them because you waited a little bit longer, she has no chance of becoming pregnant. Right, right. And that's yeah. definitely the risk of waiting for sure. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think if anything, it maybe go a little bit sooner, but I agree. Okay, so my question to follow up on that is, you know, back to the humans being not very fertile, um, we're learning a lot about ovulation and things, right, in women. And so are there things that we could apply that to the cow to get a better handle on when precisely she's ovulating to figure out the best time to breed? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we do utilize a lot of tools when we develop these systems. 
to try and understand ovulation, but it's very difficult to practically implement them on a cow-calf operation. From a research standpoint, we can, and and we do. Uh, We're we're utilizing right now, um, obviously, a lot of ultrasound, but we use 3D ultrasound also. And uh, taking a look at um, sort of that peri-estrus period, so just before estrus and just after estrus and embryo development, utilizing 3D ultrasound to look at all their differences in follicle development and things like that. Um, there's also uh, emerging blood tests um, and uh, to help us try and understand it a little bit uh, a little bit better. So from a research standpoint, we're continuing to pick up and a lot of this comes from human medicine, but uh, as technology develops, we're, we're using it to try and develop systems to get cows pregnant, but practically, implementing these just isn't practical for a producer to use, but from a scientific standpoint, we're using them. Yeah, I think it'll be so fascinating if we get to the point where we can have affordable and rugged enough on-animal hardware, right? Like I'm thinking like, what's the Apple Watch version that we can have on a cow that can say, you know, pulse is changing, blood stuff I don't know, insert magic here is changing, right? Are those going to be things that are going to be like, send an alert and be like, yep, that that cow is coming back in or, you know, things like that. And it sounds a little sci-fi, but I think, I think that's where we're moving in the industry, right? To that kind of precision animal livestock management. Absolutely. Uh, The dairy is already doing it. And so they, I mean, there are ear tags or rumen boluses or activity monitors, right? And they're using algorithms, to do exactly that, and that's how they're doing their heat detection. Um, yeah, I I think sensor technology and artificial intelligence is going to uh, explode over the next ten years in terms of animal production systems. Okay, so we're kind of nearing the end of our time together, but I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the fact that you participate in Ironman competitions. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? How did you get involved in that? I don't. I mean, uh, I've always done sports ever since I was a kid, and um, so you know, as you mature, you get older. I mean, I played a lot of sports, and then I I did a, I ran a lot, and so I, sp- I ran multiple marathons, and I realized, you know, I, I'm not built like a, a runner, right? I'm over 200 pounds, and and. Uh, it gets a little bit, it starts to hurt your joints. And so I was like, you know, I really need to do something different other than just run every day. And so speaking to a friend, she's like, uh, you know, I, I'm going to try and uh, uh, do an Ironman. And I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll sign up and I'll do an Ironman with you. I signed up for my first Ironman before I even had a bike. And, um, but it was great. I mean, great experience. And I so sort of love doing triathlons. And but the great thing about it is I might only run once or twice a week. And I don't, I mean, it's so much better on your joints to be cycling or swimming. So, so yeah, that's, that's how I so into cool. Yeah. So running, cycling, and swimming would be for the triathlon. What's your favorite of those three? Boy, I, I would say the cycling part that that's the part that i it doesn't doesn't concern me at all um i don't enjoy training for the swimming and in the in an ironman the swim is about two and a half miles and um so you just have to get through it so you don't have to train as hard um 
and then the bike the bike is the longest leg and then you've got to run a marathon at the end the reason i don't like the marathon at the end is because you're so worn out from the rest of it that but i i don't mind the marathon it's just it's just at the end Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I'm definitely not a triathlete and, but, I, and I don't do like road bike, but we have like hybrid bikes. So it's like kind of in between a mountain bike and a, a road bike, a little wider tires and stuff, but more kind of built like a mountain bike. And we took our bikes to um, Glacier National Park and some other places this summer and got to ride like on going to the Sun Road before it opened up to for the cars and stuff. So I felt like I was a triathlete by the time I got to the top of the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, it's, it's a great sport. Cycling is, it really is. And Absolutely. Okay. So before we go to our final three questions, I want to ask and follow up about this mentor award. And I thought that was cool that as an administrator, you still said you have five graduate students currently. So what's your secret? What's the secret sauce to being a good mentor for graduate students for us in particular, but for anybody? Boy, that's that's a good question. I, I don't know if I have... Um... I don't know if there's an equation, right? But what I can tell you is I think the key for me to being uh, uh, is to be very careful on the people you select to work for you, right? That makes things a lot easier. Um, and I think uh, so So once you pick the right people, it. I mean, I'm not sure I'm a great mentor, but I can tell you that uh, by selecting the right people, they were self-starters enough. They require very little mentoring, and they they do a lot on their on their own. And so, picking people who are smarter than you, not being intimidated by um, them being smarter than you, I think is really important in acknowledging it. And so, um, I would say that to me is the thing, and and or uh, the other thing is always being available. Right. So true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Maynard Hoberg would have been the chair who hired me at Iowa State in the Department of Animal Science when I started in 09. And um, I have a sticky note that I still have on my um, kind of cabinet by my desk. And it's a quote that Maynard told me one time, and it was, hire somebody smarter than you and clear their way. There you go. Yep. I mean, and I've always looked up to Maynard. I and mean, as an administrator, love speaking to him. I mean, he's a great mentor to other administrators. So you're awfully lucky to have had them. Yeah, yeah, you have you have no idea. So it is time to our famous three. Um, okay, so our first question is, what is your favorite beef resource? Well, being a um, person who focuses on reproduction, we started a, a group in 2002 called the Beef Reproduction Task Force, and so we have. We developed a website. It's called beefrepro.com uh, or .org. I mean, beefrepro.org if you type that in there. And it has a ton of resources. So um, that's usually the first place I go when I'm trying to look for answers uh, when I get questions from producers. So I recommend folks go there if they have reproduction questions. Absolutely. And there's been a lot of cool research, you know, ideas that have come out of there, a lot of the development of the synchronization protocols. Garland Dalkey, who's in our Iowa Beef Center, has kind of helped facilitate some of the putting those things together. We use our Sync program from Iowa State. That's you know what I use when I need to build my calendar for time day I programs and stuff like that. So 
just has made life so much easier for producers. So we don't have to sit there and count on our fingers and toes. Absolutely. How many days? How many days is seventy-two hours from now? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, um, the Astro Sync Planner is I, I use it all the time, and so yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah. it's a great resource, and and that can be found on that website. So yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. it's a great place to go. So befreepro.org. Oh yes, perfect. Okay, so the second question is. What is a book not related to beef that you are currently reading? Yeah, so I, I, I'm reading a book uh, at home, and then I also have an audio book, and I, I'll tell you the two books. So um, I, I like uh, uh, fictional history. So John Metchner is a is an author that I really like to read, and uh, the book I'm co- currently reading is called The Covenant by John Metchner. Um, it's it's probably the third time I've read it, but it's a fictional history of southern part of Africa. Um, and then um, the audio book that I'm listening to now is, boy, I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's You Can't Hurt Me. It's sort of a, a, an inspirational um, book that is written by David Goggins, um, who was a Navy SEAL. And has run sixty ultra marathons, and just talking about how and how to uh, remain um, motivated to continue to do this. And he talks about his life story. And when you hear about his life story, you you don't have any excuses because he comes from a really rough background. So so those are the two books I'm reading. Nice, nice. It's all about perspective. I like it. Do you frequently have a book that you're like a physical book that you're reading and a book that you're listening to? Um, yeah, usually. I mean, I'm listening to a book when I'm driving, uh, and then at home, I actually like to have a physical book. I can't read on a. I don't like reading on a Kindle or a iPad or something like that. So I like the actual book. Yeah. I used to be like that till I would go on a trip and got tired of taking 10 books with me, right? So it's pretty handy to have them all in the Kindle. That's right. <laughs> Amazon knew what they were doing when they were like, we're going to give you a $50 device that you can buy $5 books over and over and over and over. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. I got into audiobooks several years ago and it makes even, you know, driving home to my parents three hours away, it makes it so much faster. It's just... Sometimes you're like, wow, did I pay any attention to that drive? Because I was really immersed in that story. Oh, it makes a massive difference. Boring. Yes. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. So the third and final question, which maybe we've hit on a little bit here, but we'll circle back to it, is what is a trait of someone that you admire that has helped them be successful? Yeah. um, So... So from being a university administrator, I mean... Trait that I admire is at a university administrator that's willing to take some risk, right? Because we tend to, most people tend to be risk averse, but having taking risk often ends up resulting in things happening, right? And so moving things forward. So, uh, so that's a trait that I admire um, a lot. And then, I mean, the other thing that I often tell my students is. You're not going to get anywhere if you're not going to be vulnerable enough to ask for help Um, because nobody gets to be successful without the support of a lot of other people. 
So true. There's a lot of wisdom there. Hopefully administrators are listening and thinking that sometimes we just need some of that seed funding or we need to take that high risk step. Been thinking a lot lately about um, disruptive science and how maybe we don't have as much of that anymore because of some of the metrics that we use for success, right? Publish or perish. And maybe we shouldn't be publishing quite so much and we should be focusing a little more on you know, really advancing science and some of these things. But yeah, a lot of wisdom in there. I like it. And I tell students all the time, you know, you're, you got to be a lifelong learner in grad school. Like you're literally here to be a student. I don't expect you to know all these things, but I do expect you to ask about them and learn about them. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Well, Cliff, this has been a really great conversation. We're so glad that you could be on the Beef Podcast show with us today. And I know our listeners got a lot out of this. And just want to thank you again for your time and being with us. Yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate the invitation.